Good morning, church. I'm going to do this morning's scripture reading, which is Colossians chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in, regard, in, question, in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. All right. Well, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. We're going to be finishing the book of James today. And I am leaning towards almost certain that we will be going into 2 Timothy from here, which I'm very excited about. I know many of you are too. Looking forward to seeing how God speaks to us through 2 Timothy, but we're not there just yet. We have two more verses to cover in James. Well, let me pray for our time in the Word. Father, we praise You. We thank You for Your holy, living Word. Thank You, God, that by Your Word uh, we are made wise unto salvation. We are changed. We mature in Christ. We grow in You, O God. We believe that your word is sufficient, Lord. It is what we need. Thank you, God, that you've given us your word, that you've preserved it through all of these centuries, that we have our, a copy of our own, God, that we can study and learn from. And I pray that in this moment, as we conclude the book of James, that you would minister to our deepest needs through your living word, and that you would bring much glory to your name. May this be worship. It's all worship, Father. Whether we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we do to the glory of your name, and certainly no less gathering around your holy word. And so, Father, we honor you. Please teach us today by your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk in these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, today, as I said, we conclude the book of James. Thought we would last week, but I had a feeling that really those last two verses needed to stand alone. And so if I were to ask you, 
and I've not ever asked you this before until today, what is the theme of the book of James? All right, and you know I just told a lie. I lied in church. You guys, and I said that because you know I've been saying it every single week, and you did a good job. Good job, church. You knew the answer. So we want to be doers of the Word. It's not enough to just hear it. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to even tell other people about it. Those are all great and necessary, but we've got to be doing this stuff. We've got to be doing it. Well, last week, we talked about praying as a doer of the Word. It's necessary that we be those who pray, because as I said, James didn't just give us a bunch of do's and say, go out and do it, and God be with you. He said, we got to pray, amen? we got to pray to God, pray for ourselves, pray for each other. And he specifically talked about praying for the refreshing of the weary. Praying for the refreshing of the weary. And so that word I really want to emphasize, to be refreshed, to be revived, to be renewed, to be restored. James asked, he said, is there anyone among you who is suffering? Let him pray. He said, is there anyone among you who is sick? Let them call for the elders and let the elders anoint them with oil and pray over them. James admonished the body of Christ to confess their sins to one another and to pray for one another. And James reminded them that the, there is power in prayer from ordinary people like us. Amen. He had to remind them that there is, in, there is power in prayer. And he kind of gave an unlikely example. He talked about Elijah, the mighty man of God, the prophet of old. He said, but the reality is, Elijah was a weak man with a strong God. And that's all we are, weak people with a mighty God. He had a nature just like us, a weak, failing human nature. But he believed God, he trusted God, he sought God, and God answered. God answered. And James says, we can too, because we are in Christ, and God is for us, and He's our Father, and He invites us to call upon His name and to come with confidence and boldness. Amen? And so we were encouraged to pray. Now, we could have included today's portion of Scripture in last week's text, uh, last week's message, rather. Could have easily done that. And I'm going to read it to us now and explain why I say that and also why we're going to handle it separately. So look with me at verse 19 in chapter 5. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, that could easily fit within the context of prayer. Wouldn't you agree? In fact, I could have made that its own point, and I would have said something like, the priority of praying for those who wander, or prayer that restores the wanderer, the person who drifts from the truth. Could have easily done that. But at the same time, it does appear that James is switching subjects, and he's not so much talking about prayer as much as he is talking very much about the person that turns from the faith and our responsibility to go after them. And I will also say, after having read this verse, that this appears to open up a can of worms for us theologically. We may begin to ask some very difficult questions uh, this sounds like an issue of eternal security. Can someone turn away? And can they be lost? And so, knowing me, I, know, I knew good and well that by the time I got into these verses, I would already be about an hour into my sermon. And so, it's like, you know what, let's just go ahead and call it what it is. We will deal with these verses next week. And so, uh, so here it is. So, I've titled this message, Winning the Wanderer. Winning the the wanderer. Let me read those two verses to us just one more time so we can really let this sink in. My brothers, and this of course would speak to all the, the brothers and sisters in the church, my brothers, if anyone among, among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death 
and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to have a bunch of points here like I would normally like to do. And what I'm going to do rather is have tons of questions. We're going to really scrutinize these two verses. We're just going to ask so many questions, and we're going to attempt to answer the text with the text, and we're going to attempt to answer the text and the questions therein from the Bible. And I want to model for you really how you ought to be studying your Bible. That's really what this is. Amen? I am here to feed the flock and teach God's Word week after week, but I'm also here to model to you how you're to do it for yourself. I don't approach it one way and then you're supposed to approach it a different way. No, we, we approach the, the Word of God the same way. And so we're going to do that today. So with that, what does James mean when he says, anyone among you who wanders? What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says that the wanderer's soul will be saved from death? I'm sure that as we heard him, as we read that, we probably begin to have some questions in our minds and in our hearts. Is James saying that you can be saved and wander from the truth and be damned? Is that what he's saying here? Is he saying that you can be born again and then not born again and then you need to get born again again and then not born again and get born again again again? And that's just in your first day of walking with Jesus, really, if we're honest, right? Is that what he's saying? Listen, I know this is a controversial topic, and I know that people differ on the issue of eternal security, eternal security. Now, what I'm not talking about is once saved, always saved. That might be kind of subtle, but there is a distinction. Usually when someone says, do you believe in once saved, always saved, what they're asking is, do you believe that you can pray a prayer, commit to Christ, and then just live however you want to live, giving no evidence whatsoever of actually being a changed person or a Christian and still consider yourself saved. That's a whole other issue, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But what we're talking about is eternal security, that you are safe and secure in the Savior's hand, and that forever, that when you are born again, that's it. That's the idea of eternal security. Now, I know that there are passages that may make it sound like or even seem as though we can lose our salvation, and this is one of them right here. Or, some would say, it's not that we can lose our salvation, but we can forfeit our salvation. What they mean by that is, I've heard, I had a guy tell me, a brother tell me one time, he said, if you're a Christian and you get in a wreck and say a cuss word, you better ask forgiveness right away because you've lost your salvation. Just like that. Now, that's a very radical view, but a lot of Christians live that way, unfortunately. But then there's a whole other group that would say, you can't lose your salvation. You can't have your salvation taken from you because of your own weakness or your own sin, but you can give it away. You can forfeit it. You can walk away. You can turn away from God, as it were. And I know people who feel as though it's just safer to assume that we can lose our salvation. I've heard people teach that. That, uh, I mean, essentially, if you try to give someone confidence that they can't lose their salvation, then they're, they're likely to just live a very ungodly life with no concern whatsoever. But if you tell them they can lose their salvation, then they're going to be more on guard. That is, that's all bad. That is all bad. That is putting a burden, a weight, a yoke on somebody that ought not be. Jesus said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He was talking to legalists. He was talking to people who were trying to approach God by doing everything right, by keeping all the rules, and they themselves knew they couldn't do it, and so they always felt as though they could not approach God. And Jesus said, look, come to me, and I'll give you rest, because Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves, so that in Him and in His accomplishments and achievements, we have access to God. Amen? 
And so I, I think it's bad to try to put that burden on somebody because then you're putting it all on them. What about God? Where's God at in the equation? Is, do we serve a mighty God who is able to keep us or not? Is it all on us to keep ourselves? That's terrible news. That's not good news. That's not good, good news at all. And so let me just say this. I think I've probably already given away my cards here. I am convinced from the Scriptures that not only can we not lose our salvation, but we will not turn away either. We will not finally and ultimately turn away and be damned again to our sin and eternal punishment. It just cannot happen. It will not happen. And isn't, it's not because that's what I want to believe, although it is, you know, obviously, nothing wrong with that. But it's because I'm convinced from the Word of God that such is the case. And I just really want to drive this point home for a moment before we move on into the, to the, really what the text is actually getting at. This is an important issue that we need to take just a moment and really try to drive into our heads and into our hearts because it affects a lot of things. Wouldn't you agree? I'm convinced from the Scriptures that we are safe and secure in the Savior's hand and so are you if you're in Christ because it's really not you. There's something so much bigger going on here, something so much bigger. This is an eternal work. This is something that God has been doing before you were ever even born, before the world was ever even created, and it's something that God is going to see to the very end. Amen? This is God's doing. God has wrought this. God has purposed this. God has achieved this for us. God has called us into it. And God will see us to the very end for His glory and in love. And Jesus spells this out for us in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 37. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a, do you hear the certainty in that? And it's, Where in there did you hear anything about our own efforts in the equation? This was all between the Father and the Son. He said, All that the Father gives me, I will save them. I will keep them. I will raise them up on the last day, and I will not lose not even one. Amen? Jesus said He would not lose one. And so I've said this time and again, and I'll say it again, and I'm going to keep saying it. The issue is not, can a Christian lose their salvation? The real question is, can Jesus lose a Christian? And Jesus just told us that will never happen. That will never, ever happen. He said, in fact, it's the Father's will that he doesn't lose one. Can Jesus break the Father's will? It is not possible. So this is an issue of really an agreement between the Son and the Father that's at stake here. Not our ability or inability to keep ourselves. It's all about the Son's faithfulness to the Father. That's what's really at stake here. That should give us great comfort. That should give us a strong peace and joy that we are safe and secure and that nothing can change that, not even ourselves. This is sometimes referred to as the doctrines of grace. And the reason why it's called the doctrines of grace is because it's all grace. It is all grace. Jesus said no one can come to the Father unless God draws him. It is God's gift to us when He calls us to Himself. That's God's love. That's God's kindness. We didn't deserve it. It's grace. Amen? When God keeps us, when God keeps us on the path and does not let us stray, that's God's grace. That's God's gift. That's God's love towards us. 
when God glorifies us in eternity, that's God's gift of love and grace towards us. And we didn't deserve any of it. That's why it's called grace. Sometimes we like to just say grace is unmerited favor. It's, you know, receiving good things that we didn't deserve. It's so much more than that. It's not less than that. And that in itself is a very profound reality, but it's so much more than that. God saved wretched sinners like ourselves. God purposed to do it. He did it at a very high cost to Himself. He gave His one and only Son, and God keeps us, and God will preserve us, and God will one day glorify us in His presence. Now, this is spelled out for us with even more detail, with even greater clarity and profundity in Romans 8, verse 28. It says, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now listen to this. There's five things I want you to see here. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He justified excuse me, sorry, foreknew, those whom He foreknew, He predestined, those whom He predestined, He called, those whom He called, He justified, and those whom He justified, He what? Glorified. Five things there that God did. Did you catch that? Now, what's significant about this? God did all of those, every one of them, and He started in eternity past. God foreknew you. That that essentially means He foreloved you. He knew everything about you. He knew everything about you before you were ever even created, before the world ever even existed, and He loved you. And He predestined us to adoption. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That happened in eternity past. And then, in our life, He called us to Himself. He drawed us with loving cords of kindness. It was His kindness that drew us to repentance, that called us to repentance, and He saved us. He glorified us. You know what that is? That means He declared us guiltless. He declared us perfectly and completely innocent in His sight. God did that in our lives in a moment in time, and one day we will be glorified in His presence. It'll be over. We will be perfect in His presence. No more sin, no no more sorrow, no more regrets, no more sickness, no more death. And that's spans from everlasting to everlasting, from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, from eternity past to eternity future. God did all of those. God did all of those. Amen? It's His doing, and God gets all the glory. God saved us. We didn't deserve it, but such was His loving kindness and His goodness. And when you recognize this, you realize it is all grace. It is all God's grace. God did that. And so, it is in that context that we find ourselves safe and secure. Amen? When you understand how all of these things fit together. And that's why, again, it's called the doctrines of grace, because it's God's grace. We could not do anything for ourselves, our plight. We were totally depraved, dead in sin, separated from a holy God. God in love chose us. God in love called us to Himself, drew us to Himself in salvation, and God in love keeps us to the very end, and that is all God's doing for God's glory. It is grace, amazing grace. Now, having said all of that, you still with me? You with me? You mad at me? I hope you ain't mad at me. Okay, this is glorious stuff. To God be the glory, amen? I would submit to you that though we cannot lose our salvation, we can abuse our salvation. I just came up with that the other day. It just came to me while I was driving down the road. I thought, that's good. I need to, I need to write that down before I forget it. We can't lose our salvation, but we can abuse our salvation. Um, you know, Satan wants to take us out of the game. He does not want us to be effective for God. He does not want us to have a powerful testimony. He wants to 
uh, wreck our assurance. He doesn't want us to have a boldness and a confidence in our salvation. Uh, he wants us to backslide. He wants to bring reproach on the name of Christ. And if He can't take us out of God's hand, He certainly wants to try to render us ineffective and make us ineffective. And He's working overtime to do that. And so we have a responsibility. Even though it's all God and it's all grace, it does not excuse our responsibility. Okay? That's the other side of the coin here. We have to believe and we have to obey. Grace does not give us a license to sin, but exactly the opposite. In Romans chapter 6, the question is asked, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? If God is so gracious, and if in my sin, you know, God's grace is always greater than my sin, we sing about that, and it's a wonderful truth. Well, if that's the case, then I can just sin all I want, right? God loves to forgive. I love to sin. This is a great relationship. Is that how it's supposed to be? No, not at all. Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. We are safe and secure in the Father's hands, and for that reason, we want to honor Him. We want to walk in His ways. We want to persevere. We want to bring glory to Him. We want to obey and serve Him. We want to love Him and be in fellowship with Him and right relationship with Him. All of that is, it's all part of the, the same deal. It all goes together. So, if that is the case, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to put that together. If this is the case, then who is the wanderer referring to? What's he talking about here? Who is he talking about? I would submit to you that this is someone who appeared to be of them, but proved not to be. Someone who had the appearance, and I mean very much appeared to be part of the fold, but ultimately demonstrated that they were not. 1 John talks about this very thing, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. John said, just because they're in the church doesn't necessarily mean they are one of us, that they are in Christ, that we are one in Jesus. There are some who will look like it, and very convincingly so, but then they will go out and it will become manifest that they actually weren't. And how many times have we seen that? How many times do we continue to see that? And you know this, you know this. We read that, we hear this, and we can think of a whole list of people that we've seen in our lives. That person turned away. That person left. That person abandoned their faith. That person left their family, their kids. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's devastating. It's shocking. But you know what? Jesus told us it would be this way. Jesus told us it would be this way. Maybe you are familiar with the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. You ever heard that? Jesus says this. <clears throat> he says that in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came in and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came to him and said, Master, did we not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? He said, in the kingdom of God, there are going to be a lot of people in there, and they're all going to look like the good seed at first. And then they're going to grow up and you're going to begin to recognize they're not. They're not all good seed. That there are wheat and that there are tares among us. 
and that sooner or later it's going to be revealed, and there is going to be a certain judgment that is going to come upon those who prove not to be genuine. And it's going to always be this way in the age in which we live. Wherever there's a church, there's wheats and there are tares. And this is a sobering thing. This is, this is something that we have to really heed and pay close attention to. This is serious because who are we? What are we? Am, am I a wheat or am I a tear? See, a lot of times, other people, we can look at each other and think, they look like wheat to me, right? It looks good to me. And, and it's not my place to say, hmm, is that person a wheat or a tear? I got a feeling they're a tear. You look like a tear. Are you a tear? What are you doing in here, tear? No, we don't. That's, that's not what we're to do, okay? Um, what did Jesus say? He said, with the guy in the parable, let, let, them, let them remain. Let them remain until the harvest, and they're going to be uprooted and burned. And Jesus said in another story, he said what? People are going to come to me on that day looking to gain access into my kingdom. And I'm going to say, depart from me. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things in your name. Amazing things, in fact. Miracles. Mighty works. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. You're not mine. You don't belong to me. You're not my sheep. That's a terrifying thought. See, that's a tear. That's a tear. And that will be revealed. It will be made manifest. That is a reality in the church today. And so we have to take a very strong look in ourselves, between ourselves and God. God, who am I? What am I? So we got to recognize, I don't think we're talking about believers here who turn away from the truth and lose their salvation. I think we're talking about people in the church who are among us, but they're not of us. But you can't tell it right away until they wander off. Now, question, in what way does one wander? What is the evidence of one having wandered? And this we see in the text, in, our, in James, in front of us. Well, first off, James says that they wander, okay? What does that mean? It means to stray or to drift. You ever drifted before? I mean, that's, that should be an easy picture in our mind as we just, you can see something kind of drift off out into the water. It just kind of goes. Um, you just let it go and the current takes it off. It has drifted. Uh, to stray and if we're honest, we all have this tendency in us, do we not? That's why the, the, hymn, the hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Can we resonate with that? I mean, it's a, it's a battle. It really is. But James says that they stray, they drift, and what is it that they drift from? They drift from the truth. That's what he says. They drift from the truth. Something happened. They quit believing. Something happened. They started believing something else. Paul talks about that very thing in Galatians. He said, what happened to you, you foolish Galatians? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? You think that you could begin by grace and then start keeping the law, and you're going to go to the next level by righteous works of the Mosaic law? Who has bewitched you? That's another gospel, he says. And he says, if someone preaches another gospel, let them be anathema. That's damned, accursed. That's serious business. And we see this. I've seen some strange things in my short time as a Christian here on this earth. People that are on fire, people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, people that are very eloquent, and they can just lay out for you beautiful doctrine and teaching. They've done all these amazing things for God, and then all of a sudden, bam, they're a Buddhist or something. And you're like, how did that happen? How in the world did that happen? That happened in Tennessee right before I came out here. A guy that wanted to be uh, an, ass an assistant pastor. And man, he sure impressed me. And uh, I thought, man, this guy has got it going on. I mean, just in, in all his ways. It's easy to be impressed, right? And something happened, and he didn't get the recognition he felt he deserved, and he got frustrated, and he left the church, and next thing he was on Facebook talking about how he was a Catholic Buddhist. 
And it's like, what is that even? I've never, uh, you know, what is that? And so, what happened to that guy? How does that happen? And these things do happen. And not only do they stray from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the NASB, it says that, tell someone that if they, well, in, in the ESV, it says if you turn them back from their wandering. But in the NASB, it says if you turn them back from the error of their way. So it gets more specific. And this really speaks of their conduct, the way of living, their way of life. So they stray from the truth. They get away from the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible, the truth of Jesus, and their lifestyle begins to manifest all kinds of ungodly things. So they have strayed from God in the truth, and they have strayed from God in their conduct, and they are living in all manner of unrighteousness, and it becomes very apparent, wow, this person is not who they professed to be. This person is not who they professed to be. Now, let me just ask this question. Is everyone who backslides a tear in danger of damnation? No, obviously not. No way. Um, there's been some times in my Christian walk, if you could have seen me, you would have been like, that guy has done lost his religion. Um, you know, it's just, it's part of it. It's a bumpy ride, is it not, brothers and sisters? Is it a bumpy ride? Maybe it's just been smooth sailing for you. Maybe you're the blessed one. Uh, but most of us would agree it's a very bumpy ride. And we have some pretty nasty spills sometimes. And God uses even that, especially uses that. I would say some of the greatest growth in my life has come from some of the just most difficult experiences I've had as a Christian, you know. And... Um, and even though I'm, I remain as confident in this as I am, secure in the, in the Father's arms, there have been times in my walk where even when I hit a low, low, I was frightened, really, even for myself. I thought I, I would not want to have to stand before God today. Uh, and so it can get scary. It can get scary. But I would say that even in the midst of that, when you're dealing with a genuine born-again Christian and they're backsliding, there are indicators of genuine faith. There are. There is godly sorrow that happens. You do grieve over your sin. You may feel like you cannot overcome your sin, like you are totally bound and enslaved to struggles of a variety of, of kinds, but you do grieve over it. You are willing to admit it. You know, there, there are some who are like, I'm fine, I'm good. They are in gross, heinous sin, and they're like, I'm good, and I don't need the church, and I don't need this, and I don't need that. I'm just fine, me and God. In fact, God, uh, you know, is perfectly okay with me living like this, doing this, doing that. See, that's deadly dangerous right there. That, that scares me for people when I see that kind of stuff. But someone who's really overcome by sin as a Christian, I think they're sorrowful about it, and they're willing to admit it. They'll confess it. They hate it. Uh, there is repentance. It may be repenting over and over and over. It could be years of falling to certain sins, coming to it, and getting back up, and then falling again and getting back up. You're falling forward, as it were, as a Christian, right? That, that can happen. If we're honest about this, we've probably had prolonged seasons of failure in our lives, and we've probably seen people who for years, and maybe never even fully overcome, and die in that condition. I would still say that they were saved, but you know, sin has consequences. We're forgiven, for our sins, but sometimes those patterns are deep. Sometimes those patterns persist. And some, for some reason, sometimes I'll see God just, boom, someone's, they're better. They're healed, they're, they're, they're strong, they're good, and there are some people who just struggle all their life. And I don't know why that is. I'm not God. But you see the signs of sincerity in them. They are trying. They are fighting a holy war. There is a war that's being waged. And why is there a war? Because you're new in Christ, and the new man, the new woman is not content to just live that way. 
there is a tormenting of your soul when you're doing the very things that you know Christ died for. When you are doing the very things that you know Jesus died to try to set you free from. There is a battle that is existing in the soul. Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. I don't want to do these things, but I find that I still do the things I don't want to do. He says, wretched man, who am I? You know, wretched man, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And so I had to recognize that does happen to the Christian. Those things are there. But I don't think that's what James is talking about here. I don't think that's what James is talking about here. Why? Because he says their soul will be saved from death. This is a person who is spiritually dead, who is still under punishment, eternal punishment, as it were, separation from God, and their soul is heading for destruction. And notice also, James says that they will be uh, saved from a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins will be covered. That's a significant word, covered, okay? A multitude of sins will be covered. When Jesus, sometimes we like to use the word atonement. You guys with me? Okay, reel it back in if I've lost you. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. What does that mean? That means that His sacrifice on the cross covered over our sins. Uh, In the Old Testament, that was the idea when a lamb was slain for the sins of the world, it covered over their sin. It was a covering, if you will. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, has atoned for our sins, but not only has He covered them, He's washed them away. They're gone. And so, He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our covering. We don't have a multitude of sins. I had a multitude of sins. All of them, past, present, and future, have been washed away. Amen? Amen. Every sin that I commit today and for the rest of my life, that's already been paid for at the cross. Such is the majesty and the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's that powerful. It washes away all our sin, past, present, and future. And so this person still has their soul heading towards destruction, and they are still under a multitude of sin. And so James says, we need to go after that person. We need to go after that person. We need to go after that person. That's our motivation. So what's our motivation to pursue someone and turn them back from their wanderings? Because we don't want them to die in their sins. We do not want their souls to experience eternal destruction. We want their sins to be covered over and washed away. We want them to experience the same grace that we ourselves have experienced. Yes? Amen. Amen. We do. We do. And so James says, look, it's worth it. Go after them. Pursue them. So what was happening in the church? Well, you know, as I understand it, I've been told that in Judaism, they just don't put a a big emphasis on uh, conversion, on trying to, um, you know, evangelize, if you will, trying to reach people. Uh, they, they, don't, they just don't do that. And so this was very Jewish at the time, as we have said. These are very uh, entirely Jewish Christians, and maybe this was kind of a new concept to them. And maybe it was like, okay, that person went out from us, good riddance. You know, we're better now without them. Maybe they were thinking that way. You just, you don't know. And James says, no, 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 no. Just because they went out from among you and have demonstrated that they weren't actually of you does not give you the right to just let them go. Now that you know who they are and where they're at, all the more you need to go after them because their soul is in danger of eternal judgment and they are still in their sin. And so he says, let the person know that the the one who brings the wanderer back in saves them from destruction and will cover a multitude of sins. And here's another motivation. Here's why now I'm trying to get a little more practical here. So we're safe in our salvation. We can rest in that. When we see people wander away from the truth, then it appears as that they are not of us. We're supposed to go after them. Why? I would say that we are never more like Christ than when we pursue the wanderer. We are never more like Christ than when we pursue the wanderer. He came to seek and save the lost. Amen? Isn't that what He came to do? 
I mean, Jesus enthroned in eternal heavenly glory and bliss in the presence of the Father, set that aside. He let go of that. He relinquished it, and He came to the earth, and He took the form of a servant. He humbled Himself, I mean, to the, to the furthest extent imaginable so that He could save an innumerable multitude so Jesus pursued the wanderers. Jesus pursued. I mean, you can't pursue any more than Jesus pursued. And so if we are in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit, if we are followers of this Jesus, <clears throat> then that means that we're going to pursue wanderers. Jesus really, this is how He's described in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus was merciful and compassionate. He looked out amongst the people who were scattered and said they are like, a, like sheep without a shepherd. They need to be cared for. They need to be brought back in from their wandering. Pray that God would send people to do that. That was the heart of Jesus. He saw people as they were. He saw people as God saw them. And He said, may God send His workers to draw them in. And that's us. Amen? That's us, and we are never more like our Savior than when we pursue the weary and the scattered, those who have drifted and wandered. And you know, God gave a very severe rebuke to the shepherds in the Old Testament that did not pursue the wanderers. Let me read this to us, Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there were no shepherds. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search for or seek them. See, God expected His spiritual leaders to care for His people, to go after them, to not look out for themselves solely, but to look out for the good of His own people, to feed them, to care for them, to help bring healing and strength. And they didn't, and God rebuked them severely for it. And God said, I'm going to do it. God said, I'm going to do it. And He did it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then He calls us to be a part of that work. And that's the amazing thing. God uses us. God uses us. So then, is this command to pursue the wanderers just for pastors? Is it just for the shepherds? No, it is not. Who did He address in the text there? Brethren. The brothers. Brothers and sisters. Their responsibility Listen, I'll just tell you right now, if this were solely my responsibility, a lot of people are going to be falling through the cracks. I'm one man, and I'm a man with a nature just like yours, okay? And I am prone to forgetfulness. I am prone to overlook things. I'm prone to inconsiderateness. I mean, I'm right there with you. This takes a body of believers, it takes a body of believers to be able to do this. Now, let me ask you this. Can this passage also be applied to believers who are drifting? 
Let me ask that again. Can this passage also be applied to believers who are drifting? Yes. So it's not really my job to be like, are they a tear or are they just a Christian who's drifting? I'm not so sure whether I should even go after them. No, it doesn't matter really. Did they drift? Go after them. Did they drift? Go after them. Try to, try to win them back. Love them. We've done that. We've seen people go out and come back by the grace of God. And you know what? It's scary because people are dying all around us, especially with this fentanyl stuff now, you know? And so we often will tell people, you don't know when you've had your last chance, and this could be your last chance. And for some, they have gone out, and it was their last chance. It's serious. It's serious, and it scares me. I reached out to a guy just a couple of days ago, and I am like, I am worried for you. I love you. We don't want to lose you, and you could die. You know, come back. Come back. And sometimes they listen, and sometimes they don't. But we need to be doing this. We, as the body of Christ, collectively have a part to play in trying to win the wanderer and trying to bring them back and modeling Christ as the one who pursues. You know, last week we talked about those who are weary, those who are weak, those, and that can lead to backslide. It, it did for me years ago. I just went through a long period of sustained trial. Instead of drawing close to God, I just reverted to old coping mechanisms, this little something called self-destruct mode. Some people in here might can relate with that. And so I did that. I backslid. Um, by the grace of God, He called me back in quickly, you know, quickly. And so we just recognize this happens. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we have a responsibility. We who are, who are maybe more mature or more stable, when we see another brother or sister who is weak or wandering, we have an obligation to restore them, to bring them back in, to bear them up, to bear their burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? To love God and to love others. When we love God, we're going to love each other. And when we love each other, we're going to have each other's back. And when we see someone slipping, we're going to go after them. And we're going to try to call them and draw them back in by God's grace. And you know what? You can't do this unless you labor to be in community. If you are in here and you don't have relationships with people in this church, how are you going to know when they're sliding? How is anybody else going to know when you're sliding? We have to be in relationship. That, it presupposes that we know each other. We love each other. We recognize when someone's missing. We understand people are having struggles. We can pray informed prayers about that very thing because we know each other. We're one. We're a body. How can you pursue someone you don't even know? How does that work? Let me ask you this. Do you see yourself as someone God desires to use in the lives of others? You know what? Christianity, ministry, you know what it is? It's people business. Point blank. It's people work. Believe it or not, as a pastor, it took me a while to figure that out. You know, I used to think it was just teaching the Bible to people. And that's, that's subtle, but, you know, I can just get up here and give, dispense information and go on about my business, right? But it's relational. It's people work. It's getting to know people. It's being known by people. It's, it, I don't know how else to say it other than that. that, that that's what it is. It's interpersonal. And if we're not involved in the lives of people, we're missing it. Christian, I'm sorry to tell you, but if you're not involved in the lives of other Christians, you are not walking in the fullness of the Christian faith. You're not. It's the body of Christ. You're a severed limb. And you can even be in here right now and be totally detached. You can be in here right now and be totally isolated. 
that must not be. Do you see yourself as someone God desires to use in the lives of others? I want to close by reading this. Side note, this is something I forgot to mention. I meant to mention earlier. Um, I'm in school again, seminary, full load, 12 units. Please be praying for your pastor, okay? Pray for, I'm doing this for you, just so you know. I, I want to serve you as best I can. And I'm reading this book right now on biblical counseling called Instruments in the Hands of in the Redeemer's Hands. I highly, highly recommend it. And I want to just close by reading. I was reading this last night, and it just blessed me deeply. So let me read this. It's about a page and a half. Sam called me in a panic. It had been an ordinary day. Get up, go to work, and do his job until quitting time. But as he was rushing home, he was approached by a desperate man. The man said that his life was a mess, that he didn't even know where he was going to sleep that night. Sam could tell that he wasn't a seasoned street person. So hoping to be a conduit of help, Sam took him home and called his pastor, me, the person writing the book. Paul, he said, I came across this guy who lost his job, had a terrible fight with his wife, and was thrown out on the street. I thought I'd bring him over to your house so that you could give him the help that he needs. Is, is now okay? Before Sam could say anything else, I responded, isn't God's love amazing? God cares about this man and put one of his children in his path. God cares about you and has given you an opportunity to be an instrument in His hands. I am persuaded that God never gets a wrong address, and He intends to use you in this man's life. Let me pray for you right now that God will fill your heart with His love and your mind with His wisdom. When I finished praying, Sam said, but I don't think I'm able, I interrupted. I will continue to pray for you tonight and I will call you in the morning. I am so encouraged by your ministry to this man. I said goodbye, and I hung up the phone. For the next several weeks, I stood alongside Sam, determined not to take over for him as he learned how to love his desperate friend. He learned how to be a tool God could use to encourage change in someone's life. In the process, God changed Sam and his wife in some significant ways as well. I had pushed Sam out of the nest, but not because he lacked compassion. His problem was that he lacked courage. Sam had assumed that whatever this man needed was way beyond what he could offer. He didn't see himself as one of God's instruments, only as one of God's conduits, a passive channel connecting one thing to another. An instrument is a tool that is actively used to change something. And God has called all of His people to be instruments of change in His redemptive hands. Embedded in the larger story of redemption is a principle we must not miss. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things in the lives of others. What mission board, what ministry, what local church would use the people God used in Scripture? There was Moses, an exiled murderer. Gideon, fearful and hiding. David, the shepherd boy with no military training, Peter, who publicly denied Christ, and Paul, persecutor of the church, to name a few. Along with these are untold numbers of little people God used in big ways to fulfill His plan on earth. God never intended us to simply be the objects of His love. We are called to be instruments of that love in the lives of others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we do indeed desire to be instruments in your hand, instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. Help us, God, to have that missionary heart. Help us to be those who will go after the wanderer. Help us, Lord, to be those that take note, who notice those around us who are struggling. Help us to have that insight. Fill us with your love and courage enough to come alongside someone we don't have to know it all. We don't have to be some trained specialist. We just need to be available and willing. And so, God, help us to do just that for the sake of the body of Christ, for the sake of Your great name, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
May we be a body of believers who pursue and win the wanderers. For, Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. And if not for the body of Christ, where would I be today? I can only think of so many faithful brothers and sisters who came alongside me and helped me to continue to run the race. God, use us to do the same for those around us. We give you the praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.